0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. And again, this is one of our tools that we're using today. It it would be found in your bulletin. It's a timeline. If you didn't get one, don't worry about it. You can come up out of your seat and over there on that stool is some of those timelines. Just take one for yourself because I may refer to it a few times in the service. It's just a good way mentally to look at linearly how end times events start to unfold. Uh, And the last time we were in Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus spoke basically uh, about bad religion and really the dichotomy between good and bad religion boils down to, how do we represent God? Yes, the religious leaders had an obligation to properly represent God, but even the average believer, we do represent the Lord if we call ourselves Christians. And today, we look at what's traditionally known as the Olivet Discourse, which is a private discussion that Jesus has with his disciples that really starts with a question about the temple and ends up leading into end times prophecy, and we'll see how that unfolds. And the title of today's sermon is Watchful and Not Fearful. And the truth is that we know as we get closer to God and we become more mature, whatever he has for us in the future, he always has our best interests at heart. Now, some of you may have come here today and you're struggling in your business. You're struggling making the, the rent. You're struggling uh, with this flood situation and, and you really need to be encouraged. But, and you may say, well, we're going to talk about end times prophecy. Let me encourage you because as we go through this, we're going to see that the Lord is very close to establishing his kingdom. Right? He, it's not that, time isn't just going to keep going on and on and on. He eventually is going to interrupt it as he did when he came as the babe in the manger. So we'll see that. So I want to encourage you with that. We're going to break this down into two or three sermons because there's a lot of information in here and I don't want to rush through it. We will be discussing and in order the rapture, what's known as the rapture, the tribulation, the Second Coming, the Antichrist, and everybody has questions about that, the Millennial Kingdom, and the New Heavens and the New Earth. We'll be encompassing multiple Bible books, so we're going to be in different portions of the Bible. And please, if you have any questions at the end, uh, please ask those questions, email us at the church, we'd love to answer those questions. So we're going to start with verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be here left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in context, Jesus just got done lamenting in chapter 23 about Jerusalem because the spiritual system that was supposed to represent God had become corrupt. And the disciples here are marveling about this structure, this temple. And it's going to come crashing down. There's not one stone. History tells us this. We're in that portion of of man's history that we know that this did happen. Now, that's going to be devastating for the Jewish people. It's no coincidence that um, September 11th, the 10-year anniversary is coming up and a lot of us on the East Coast lament and we mourn over what happened. And some may say, Pastor Joe, that's in poor taste, you know, understanding how people feel. That's exactly the point. First of all, I was at ground zero not long after the towers came down and I still remember the scene. It was terrible. However, the Jews had more of a stake in that structure and their structure, the temple, because there was an association to God there. So when that came down, just imagine how they felt about that. So I just try to put you, you know, I try to do things to kind of look at it from all angles so we can really get a feel of what's going on at the time. We know that a few chapters back, even the disciples cautioned Jesus, you you might be offending the religious leaders. They were still concerned about offending these guys. And here it appears that they're still very impressed with their Jewish culture. If you look at the other gospels, it says that they marveled as they showed Jesus the structure. And Jesus knew what the future was going to be. So it doesn't take long to burst their bubble. And I think the message that he has for them is guys, don't get too attached. God is not pleased with what's going on, God is the one that we follow, not things that are tangible on the earth. And as Christians, we can see the same thing. We know that the scripture tells us, you read the book of Revelation. You read the Bible that the church, so to speak, will still exist as a structure and an organization, but the true believers will be removed during those awful times of plagues that God throws down on a rebellious world. But there will be some with crosses and steeples and they'll be calling themselves Christians and they'll be part of an organization. But God sees a corruption there, the great apostasy that Thessalonians tells us about. However, the true believers he's going to take with him and we'll, we'll get into that. This sobering uh, answer yields an eschatolo- eschatological discussion, which is basically a discussion about end times. So, what we first need to do to answer the first question that Jesus does here is to go to Luke 21 because he spells it out in great detail. Luke 21, starting with verse 20. And this is a warning. Jesus gives everyone a warning 40 years before it occurs. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We covered this uh, some sermons ago. There was the Jewish-Roman War. If you pick up your history books of 66 AD, it culminated in 70 AD. And this is what happened in verse 20. Now, I'm going to go from the Bible, and then I'm going to move to history. Again, pick up any history book. The Roman legions, there were four of them under Titus that literally surrounded Jerusalem. It was the 5th legion, the 10th legion, the 12th, and the 15th. Jesus is dead accurate. They literally surrounded the place. Uh, But it took them some time to muster up. Verse 21, many did flee. Many remembered the words of Jesus, and history records that many fled Jerusalem. They saw the Romans start to to, march and do their thing, and there was still time to get out of that city. And some saw it, and they didn't go into the city. They're like, I'm not touching that one. Dead accurate. A third point, verse 22, these are the days of vengeance. Again, the temple was supposed to be preserved and dedicated to Zeus, the Greek god, or one of the Roman gods. However, the, the hatred of the Romans to the Jews was so great that they did send a flaming arrow and um, against the orders of their commander, the temple burnt to a ground and all the gold melted through the stones. Uh, and four, verse 24, uh, many died by the edge of the sword. Now, history tells us that uh, those who survived that uh, attack, that sacking of Jerusalem became slaves. So you either died in the, in the siege or you became a slave for the Romans. It was a bad outcome. However, God sent them a lifeline. Whether they were good, bad, pagans, Jews, Christians, he sent them a lifeline in his word. God always sends us the lifeline. You know? He was going to do this. He was going to allow this to happen. But he said, for those of you that are heeding this, flee, get out of there, because it's going to be, be pretty bad. And even though, as Jesus said, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing, it's not going to be a nice time for a mother. As a matter of fact, if we read the history books, some resorted to cannibalism because they they starved them out and they had very little water left. So it was a bad time. Now, he does speak about the times of the Gentiles. And some look at this as the church age. And they say, well, the times of the Gentiles are us, the church, not so fast. That's a problem. Because we don't trample Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the true believer understands the value of, of Israel and the Jews, and knows that their time will be prominent again in the near future, and we support Israel. We support the Jewish people. So what you can look at this is, and again, here's the timeline. On the first side, it's the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we spoke about Daniel 9's prophecy about the future events for the Jewish people, the uh, 69 sevens, the 483 years until Messiah would come. And then Messiah would be cut off. And then this kind of limbo area where nothing is happening. And then the last seven, the last seven year period will happen in our near future. But in the limbo period, really, it seems like the Gentiles are taking prominence. So two things. Number one, in a spiritual sense, the Gentiles are brought into the fold. But more importantly, in a a world dominant sense, uh, Israel was going to take a back seat for a few thousand years. Uh, And many Gentiles would come and go through that that holy land, so to speak. So this is very interesting as we look at our world. We look at 1948, you know, Israel becomes a nation. 1967, she regains biblical Jerusalem. And we start to see Israel develop her military might. So we see that we're progressing into interesting times. Prior to 1948, people would look at this and say, I don't see it happening, especially after the Holocaust. But God was going to regather his people, and that last seven will continue again. Now, I wondered for a while why Jesus would say something and it wouldn't come to pass for 40 years. And then I thought about it and I said, you know what? My theory is that if Jesus would have said, next year this is going to happen, you know that it would have been so close in history that the Bible scoffers in our time would have looked at that and said, there's no way Jesus could have predicted that to that accuracy. He must have been saying that after the event occurred. This is why there was a good 40 years gap between the time that Jesus spoke about it and it actually came to pass. So nobody could say, well, he must have said this after the event. No, not true. Right? So it's it's, it's good to look at that. Uh, The first question, when will these things be that the disciples asked, uh, have been answered. We have two more to go. And you know, he does ask, they do ask Jesus, you know, when are these things going to be? What's going to happen? And I think that they're a little fearful. Put yourself in their position. So Jesus keeps saying, "I'm going to be crucified," the whole time he's walking with them. And you know they don't really want to receive that because you know he's their Messiah. They love him. The second thing now Jesus says is, "Not only am I going to be crucified, but the temple, the spiritual seat of Judaism, is going to be destroyed by these pagan uh, armies." So you could imagine if you were walking with Christ, well, you're going to go. And then the temple's going to be destroyed. Where does that leave us? You know, I love John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. That's the beauty of Christ. And you know what? There's encouragement for us today. God is not going to leave us orphans, no matter what our situation is. Jesus said, you know, I go, but I'm coming back. I go, but I will leave you the Holy Spirit. He will encourage you. He will comfort you. And even 2,000 years later, we can look at that and gain great encouragement from those scriptures. I'm not going to leave you orphans. So he gives them a, a roadmap, but not too much, so that they can live by faith and not by sight. See, we like to, I like to. That would be great if God said to me, here's your 10-year plan, Pastor Joe. I want you to do this event next month. I want you to do this with the church. I want you to make this decision. I love that. I would, okay, you know, I'm going to be successful if I can do that. That's great. But God doesn't give us the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the next year plan. We have to live by faith and not by sight. If we lived by sight, we would probably take the plan, ignore him, and do what he said to do. He wants a daily walk with us. There's the encouragement there. So even with the the spotty and the sketchy description, his love is still there because he wants us close to to him and and us to him as well. Two more questions to go. When will be the sign of your coming? And when will be the end of the age? Now, this is important. Some people say the end of the world. Be careful with that. World in the Greek is cosmos. Age is aeon, where we get the word eon from. What he's saying is, and what they're asking and how he answers this is, what will be the, a- the end of perpetuity? Things carrying on as usual. Lord, when will you come down and stop man's self-rule? We don't rule ourselves very well, do we? You see a lot of poverty in the world. You see a lot of uh, kingdoms where the rulers live well, and then right outside their, their gates are poor people digging through garbages. Those of you who've been mar- on missions trips have seen that. That's not going to continue because we don't do a good job ruling ourselves. So that is going to break. And God is going to interrupt human history again and say, that's it. That's, that's it. Now you're going to see what it's like to be ruled righteously, where everyone's treated equally and with love. So that's, those are two questions there. Verse 4. Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. That's the first point, that no one deceives you. We have a responsibility as believers not to be deceived. Did you ever run into someone that maybe claims to be a Christian and you try to tell them the truth about the word and they don't want to hear it? Because they've already had their mind made up. If we're truly his, he commands us not to be deceived. That's the first thing that he says here. Now, some want to be deceived. Some are involved in things, maybe cults. And you know, if you've ever studied cults, I did as a new Christian for years. What they do is when you leave the cult, if you make a choice to go, they ostracize you. Your own family won't speak to you. They cut you off from the community. So it's a strong desire emotionally to stay even though the stuff is wrong. I had a guy come to my house on a Saturday morning and my, my wife and I were out doing, you know, labor. It's, we have a, piece of property that we still work on. And listen, my rule is if I'm with the shovel and you're interrupting me and you want to talk about God, you're going to listen to what I have to say. So he started talking. I said, listen, I didn't have a Bible. I didn't have anything. God just gave me the words. This scripture, that scripture, you're off over here. This is what it says in the Greek. And he actually stopped and he started listening to me. And I could tell that he was genuine and he was excited. He's like, I've never heard that before. He goes, I'm coming back next Saturday. Yeah, but the sad part is it's been a few months he hasn't come back do you know why? because he went back to his leaders and they said they probably saw my address and put a big red X over it and said no one's allowed to go there anymore he he didn't want him to hear the truth I'll I'll listen to anti-Christian material all day long i love to see what they're saying I'm not afraid of it I know what I believe but they're deceived and their leaders hold them in deception so how do we stop from being deceived? We study God's word, right? I had a great praise report from our youth leader, Vinnie, who told me that his daughter went off to college, Ashley, and they, one of the first things they did was give them a, a test on how much of the Bible they knew. She actually beat out most of the kids, and one of them was a theology major. So they start talking to her, and they're like, how do you know so much? She goes, well, I go to Calvary Chapel. We go verse by verse through the Bible. And that was foreign to some of them, like, really, tell me more. But it's sad, because even in church, many are not being taught the word. They're not being taught the truth, so they don't know any better. Do not be deceived, the Lord says. Verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, what we're doing is Jesus is showing us a time period that's leading us to understand the events in our near future of what's called the Great Tribulation. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail a little bit later on. This seven-year period, that last seven, that last Shabuah in the Hebrew from Daniel chapter 9, where Israel is now going to take prominence again. It's going to be a very difficult time. Um, the Antichrist will be, had, have prominence in that time. A lot of movies were made about this, you know, some with artistic liberties, not quite completely scriptural. But what he does is he starts with global indicators. We're going to look at catastrophes on a large scale, and then what Jesus is going to do in verse 9, move into personal indicators. So we're going to look at that. In verse eight, I really want to start with eight because he says this is the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrow in the Greek is used when a woman goes into labor, when she has the contractions and she has those birth pangs. Now I'll tell you this, my wife and I were having this discussion about our son's birth in the kitchen last night, but my wife had a long labor. It started in the evening and in the morning, uh, she needed to sleep so they gave her some medication to put her out. So I looked by her bedside and there was this monitor and it monitored the contractions. It's a pretty amazing machine. And I just was watching the the thing go up and down. And what would happen is when it went up and it really spiked, it was a strong contraction. And whatever she was on, she opened up her eyes, looked at me and said, Joseph. Now my wife has never called me Joseph. (laughs) And since then she's never called me Joseph. So I tell you what, that must've been something, you know. I really, respect, I really respect moms, I have to tell you, because I, I wouldn't even ask the Lord to give me that experience, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, anyway, the point is that birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity until the baby is born. And even Jesus says this in John 16 about a woman who gives birth. When the baby is born, so much joy has come into the world that she forgets about the pain. Now, this is the way it's going to be in the world. That's the best way that Christ could describe it. These things are going to become more intense. These earthquakes, these floodings, these hurricanes, these uh, persecutions of believers. And it's, they're going to spike in some years. And then it's going to kind of lull. But they're going to get closer together. But the joyous part is when the Lord is revealed. And all that stuff, it won't, it won't matter anymore. i just give you a little term. It's a scientific term. It comes from the second law of thermodynamics. And the, the term is called Entropy and entropy is the understanding of disorder chaos disarrangement and that's what's going to happen that's what happens in the earthquakes in the tectonic plates in the storm systems so i may use that here and there so i want to encourage you those of you who are going through a rough patch the more we go through the scripture the next few sundays you're going to see that the lord's kingdom is at the door it's his decision you know listen we don't date set here that's weird all those guys who have done it, obviously, we're still here, so they've all failed. And Jesus said not to do that, because it's in his timing, not ours. Verse 5, cult leaders. Jesus speaks about in John 10, the good shepherd, the shepherds, the hirelings, and the wolf. Right? These cult leaders are wolves. They love to amass a following. They love to have control, and they love to have power. And we can go through the Jim Jones, David Koresh, the Swamis, the Moonies, Uh, all culminating with the Antichrist. He's going to be the ultimate cult leader because the whole world is going to be under his sway. It's not going to be just a little group here and there. He's going to get big-time popularity ratings, and we'll talk more about him. I love um, Napoleon's quote. Napoleon uh, was was an incredible military leader until he tried to invade Russia. It wasn't a smart idea, and he lost most of his forces. But Napoleon marveled, and he said... You know, guys, basically I'm paraphrasing, guys like me and other military leaders, leaders, rule by fear, power, and intimidation. We lord it over, like Jesus says. However, Jesus was able to amass a following of millions who would give their lives for them, for him, like that. And the way he did it was out of love. Napoleon scratched his head, he couldn't do it. He had to do it the way the others did it. But he was blown away by the way Jesus did it. So uh, they, you know, And so that's the draw. The draw is for a cult leader is they like the following. They like the feeling they get from being over people. Six and seven. He speaks about wars and rumors of war, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, and that's uh, kind of a, a Hebrew idiom, and that means on a worldwide scale. Now, since the beginning of time... There have been wars. Men have fought against each other because of sin and jealousy and things like that. Men like to kill other men. That's just the way it is in this world, unfortunately. I hate to be so blunt. But the truth is that Jesus is speaking about world wars. Now, this is amazing. In all the years mankind has been around, there hasn't been a world war since 1914. So in all the thousands of years man has been here. In 1914, World War I was the first war that the whole world was involved in. World War II, every continent, not country, every continent was involved except for I think Antarctica because I don't think anybody lives there but penguins. So every continent, including South America, was involved in World War II. So that really opened us up into an era, which we live in, of these things happening which couldn't have happened before 1914. You study all your war history. And now we have NATO and alliances and nuclear weapons. We we can't turn the clock back. It's marching us forward with these events. Now, the Bible is also scientific because he speaks about wars, famines, and pestilences, and they're all interrelated. If you know your chemistry, uh, nitrogen-based products can either be used for fertilizer or they can be used for munitions or explosives. That's why the federal government uh, monitors fertilizer sales because people can easily turn them into a bomb. And I won't go into it in case there's any future bomb makers listening. (laughs) But what happens is when you have a war of such magnitude, you either feed the people or you arm the troops. There's only so much nitrogen-based products that you can produce at one particular time. As a matter of fact, after World War II and during, there was a great famine in Europe. A lot of people starved to death because so much of that nitrogen was used to make explosives. Um, we know that even after World War II, there was a great rabies outbreak, pestilences, because the human host can't fight off. It's weakened from malnutrition. So you see, all three of these things go together. The Bible says it. Now let's look at these individually. Number one, famines. I think it's hard for the Western mind to comprehend how many people in the world go to bed hungry. And it's really said, because Americans are very generous, and a lot of times these governments, it doesn't get to the people. They keep it. They hoard the rice. Remember the 80s Ethiopian crisis? Uh, The Somalia, right? In Black Hawk Down, if you saw the movie, you saw an idea of the strong who would shoot up the civilians who try to take their rice. The ones ones who have the guns wins. So it's a very sad thing in the world. So you've got um, famines. Famines often lead to pestilences, again, because the human host is not strong enough, uh, doesn't have a strong enough immune system to fight off these foreign invaders. Let's just talk about some pestilences, not just here, but around the world. Do a quick Google search. HIV, right? It's only been discovered, what, in the last 30 years? Um, Dengue, Ebola, SARS, there's some nasty stuff. Yellow fever. What about E. coli? That's been around for a long time, but do you remember last year and the year before? Well, don't eat the spinach, there's E. coli outbreak. Well, don't eat the tomatoes, there's an E. coli outbreak. Well, don't eat the hamburgers. Massive recalls of of produce and meat destroyed because of E. coli outbreaks. It's getting harder and harder to control it. What about methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, known as MRSA? Bad stuff. They're running out of options with this bug because it's resistant to antibiotics. And it's getting worse. Look at uh, the rise in autoimmune uh, diseases. Different labels. Started with lupus. Now it's graduated to other ones. Uh, Look at forms of cancer. Uh, look at uh, bovine spongiform encephalitis, better known as mad cow disease, which is a prion, which is a protein infection. J- J- Jacob Crutchfield is the parallel in human beings. But the bottom line is these things are devastating and they're killing a lot of people, all right? It's just gonna get worse. In my terrorism training ever since 9-11, every year for 10 years they tell us about what's out there. It's kinda scary when you, when you go through it, you know? Um, some have released the stuff on purpose, some have mutated it. It's amazing, these scientists make these things in the lab, these uh, bio-terror agents, and they wonder, you know, you can't tell a virus or a bacteria stay in the lab, they're gonna get out. You're gonna take it on your clothes, they're gonna mutate. Once it's out, Pandora's box, the populace gets infected with it. So, you know, try, try not to be too much of a downer this morning, but this is what's, what's going on. Now, just for, for fun, uh, I am a beekeeper, They did this with the killer bees, okay? (laughs) They mated Africanized bees and European bees to get them to produce a lot more honey and be resistant to pestilence. What they didn't count on was the aggression factor. And in middle America where they were doing this experiment, uh, the bees got out, (laughs) they started mating and they started taking over other hives and now they're all throughout South America, middle America and the lower United States and they're killing people. You know, all you have to do is, is step on a, break a twig next to their hive and they'll come out and attack you. So the problem with men is, men mess around with things that men shouldn't mess around with things. And these things are going to get worse. Three, earthquakes. If you study earthquakes since the 1900s, you'll see that the frequency and the intensity has been increasing. Uh, look at tectonic activity. Fault lines all across the globe, uh, you know, strike shift. Let me tell you something. Uh, this year, my son had a science project and they said, well, you could do it on earthquakes. And for those of you who are parents, you know that a project for your kids is a project for you, right? <laughs> yeah, express that to the teachers. Um, so guess who got the, the job of creating the model and the shifting of the plates? And I really kind of got into it. You know, I had little little pieces and cars, ah, and they were falling in. <laughs> I think I got too much into it. But I learned a lot about earthquakes, you know? <laughs> okay, let's get back on point here. The word for earthquake in the Greek is seismos. That, was, that came first. In English, we took that word and we used it to make the term seismic activity. It's almost a, trans, a transliteration. What seismos in the Bible means, not just earthquakes, seismos has been used for earthquakes Um, volcanoes, flooding, and massive storms. And massive storms actually produce the flooding. The flooding is a byproduct. Now, I'm blown away because I'm actually studying this stuff two weeks ago, and uh, (laughs) it just must be where we are in the Earth's history. And I actually felt very honored by the Lord that I was able to teach it. But it was a week, two weeks ago. So I'm studying this stuff, and... There was an earthquake in Virginia. A 5.8, 5.9, very uncommon. And I looked at all the data and it said there hasn't been anything like that with the the, uh, the, uh, seismic activity for over 100 years. It's unusual, nobody expected it. So then we're going along and I'm preparing and then Sunday's coming up and then the storm comes up. So pretty much there was nobody here because people couldn't get around. So I'm like, all right, Lord, what's next? A volcano in the backyard? (laughs) But what's amazing is, what do they say about the storm in New Jersey? Wow, we've never seen, we've seen flooding before, but this was really devastating and we didn't expect it. So even on the East Coast, we think this is a West Coast thing or Japan, tsunamis. Stuff is going to start to happen here more and more just because of the, the disarrangement, right? The entropy, the, um, the coming apart of, of the world system. I'm actually blown away that... Uh, there's ever a calm day. If you look at the way the earth rotates, if you look at the hot and cold masses and the high and low pressures, if you ever study meteorology, it's actually a miracle that you could go outside and it's a calm day without any storms. So, you know. I'm going to go back to verse 6. Jesus says, the end is not yet. It's not yet. Now, for believers, the end is not yet as well. And as we get closer and closer... Uh, we need to be the voice of calmness and sanity for the rest of the world because they're going to ask questions. No doubt you've heard the questions at your job about the earthquake or the storm or the flooding, what's going on. Um, When this kind of stuff happens, they'll have something on CNN or some Fox News about, is this the apocalypse? And they'll have these people weigh in on it. The world wants to know. It's right here in the scripture. Now, if you've been afraid, if you've heard this teaching before and you've had fear fear, hopefully I do my job, if I do it properly, and you're a believer, you lose some of that fear. This isn't supposed to scare the daylights out of us. When we talk about the rapture, it shows just before it gets really bad, the Lord pulls us out. He pulls his believers out, right? So I'm hoping to to help you to be calm when it comes to this. Unfortunately, some believers really don't want the Lord to come back. Because they're doing so well in this world, they're so tied to this world, they're so tethered to material things that the idea that Christ could come any anytime and bring them into glory actually bothers them. And if you feel that way, you need to search your heart. There might be materialism in that. I think the more we see these things happen, hopefully we're not so attached to stuff in this world, because this is not our permanent home, although we are eternal beings. Last few verses and then we're going to do the next two Sundays. We're going to move uh, continually through it. Verse 9, it says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Encouragement there. So here's where Jesus moves from global indicators, the earthquakes, the pestilences, now to personal indicators of what believers may experience. And I believe he's actually, as it gets worse, he's speaking about tribulation saints, and I'll, I'll cover that. But a person's only crime will be that they're a believer. The world will hate them just because, oh, you're one of them. Sometimes we hear that now, but it's going to be even worse for, the, for those that are, are left here as time continues to march on. So I'm going to cover a few terms before we close because I think it's, it's expedient. The rapture. This is the way, if, again, if you look at your timeline, um, if you look at the side where there's mostly blue and then there's pink on the left and orange on the right, and I, I like this because I believe it's very biblical. They use scripture to back up everything they say. But basically, this is how it goes down. The Lord is going to punish the world like he did in the flood because of the world's rebellion. Man is going to become increasingly anti-God. Man is going to start worshiping man. As a matter of fact, this antichrist will demand worship, and the majority of the world will willingly worship him because he's fixing their problems, economies, wars, things like that. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction. So God will be understandably so furious that the world will deny their creator and worship a man. So a lot of the plagues that we see in Revelation will start to manifest themselves. But let me back up. That seven-year period, before that happens, the Lord will remove his believers. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4 called the rapture. He will come the clouds of the air and it says he will harpazo violently or snatch them up, scoop them up out of the earth, bring them to heaven let everything happen on the earth, let that seven-year period play out, the tribulation. At the three-and-a-half-period mark, the Antichrist will demand worship. He will actually go into a newly rebuilt temple. You may say, Pastor Joe, the temple hasn't existed for you know over, uh, almost 2,000 years, but if you look at templeinstitute.org and some of these um, websites in Israel, they've already duplicated a lot of the lavers and the utensils, and the they're all ready to go. They're waiting for someone to say to them, Go ahead, you can rebuild the temple. Now, I've heard uh, Israel's leaders say that when the Messiah comes recently, he doesn't have to be Jewish. All he has to do is bring peace. That's what he's going to do. So in three and a half years, he's going to demand worship, set himself up in the temple. The plagues, the awful plagues of Revelation will start to follow through in those last three and a half years. At the last part, at the, at the seventh year mark, the Lord will return in glory, in the power Uh, of his angels, and power of the clouds, and lightning flashing across the sky with his saints in tow, we'll cover that as well. We'll already be with him. He's going to reestablish the earth, Uh, there will be a millennial kingdom, a thousand year rule of the Lord's rule, and then he'll create the new heavens and the new earth. According to scripture, that's how it plays out. I I feel like I have to defend the rapture because there's new theology, there are new teachings now that are saying, oh, there's no such thing as the rapture. Um, the fourth century fa- fathers didn 't believe in it. I really don 't care what the fourth century fathers believe. I care about what Jesus, Peter and Matthew and all them believed. that 's more important to me. Let me just go through this. Number one, why does the rapture occur? Because the Bible says it does. First Thessalonians four. two, typology: noah 's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the tenth plague of Egypt. God never, ever punishes the righteous with the wicked. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, Abraham challenges God respectfully when God says, the time has come up for me to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now his nephew was living there. So Abraham said to God, surely you wouldn't punish the righteous with the wicked. And he says, no, I won't. Well, if there's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10... There's only four of them. God removed them before he destroyed the city. So why would God start changing his M.O.? He's immutable. He doesn't change. He always gets it right the first time. We also see through the parables, we've gone through many of them, that God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. He separates the wheat from the tares before he destroys the tares. Four, the last Shabwa, that last seven years, is for Israel. The church is gone. There's no church witnessing. There's no, uh, you know, any, any real mention of a real church. But, but there are Jewish, 144,000 Jewish believers who were sealed, and they go out and they spread the gospel. We're not here. The fifth point is that if you look at allusions, if you look at how God speaks about how he loved, the father loved Israel as she was his wife, we find that in the Old and the New Testament that, that believers collectively are the bride of Christ. So why would Jesus take us to be his bride and then subject us to his father so he could beat us up? Because in essence, he is pouring out his wrath in the judgments of Revelation. That doesn't make any sense at all. So when you, when you understand the rapture is a true thing, it's, it's in scripture. I will cover the, the, uh, the portion of scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, God has not appointed us to wrath. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, the trial that's going to come upon the whole world, but not you. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that Jesus liv- delivers us from the wrath to come. So how could anybody believe that the church is going to go through this? The last point, the difference between the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God. Right now, some would say, yeah, but believers today are being persecuted. Yes, but not at the hands of God, at the hands of the enemy. This is his domain right now. There will come a time where God will pour out His wrath, and we were not going to be the recipients of that. So understand the difference between the limited wrath of, of Satan and the real wrath of God. All right. Hopefully that that helps. Um, another term, two more terms, and then we'll wrap it up. The tribulation. I think I've kind of made the case there. Uh, Jeremiah 30 speaks about the time of Jacob's trouble. They didn't say it was the Holocaust. Okay? It's going to be worse. It's going to be worse persecution on the Jews on the time of Jacob's trouble. And that hasn't happened yet. Um, Second Thessalonians 2 tells us that the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the restrainer is done restraining him. And it doesn't really, this powerful force, this restrainer as a person is restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. So what could, what could be so strong to stop Satan's instrument on the earth? It's only God. So the understanding is that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And when the church is removed wholesale, where the Holy Spirit resides, then this man of sin will be uh, let loose on the earth. I will say this, though. We don't realize sometimes as believers when we get down on ourselves and we let other people put us down that we have the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is strong enough to restrain the Antichrist and the Holy Spirit resides in us, as the Bible says, we're only listening to the voice of the enemy when we put ourselves down and we we let others do the same. When we look in the mirror and we have a low value, a low worth of ourselves, we're not realizing the power that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. We're not tapping into it. And I just want to say that as a word of encouragement as well. The Antichrist... Understand the word anti in the Greek, or anti, can mean in place of. So some think the Antichrist is going to be this horrid looking creature. No. He's probably going to be a very handsome, very charismatic, erudite, well-spoken, all the great characteristics and qualities. The world will look at him, and they'll be in awe of him. Who can make war with the beast? Isn't he dreamy? Isn't he wonderful? He's solving all of our problems. The Antichrist is going to be a wonderful worldly character. He's going to be a King soul. Verses of David, the world's going to fall in love with this man. He is known as the Beast in Revelation 13, the Man of Sin, the Son of Perdition, the Counterfeit Rider on the White Horse in Revelation 6. And I'll tell you what, when I started looking at some of these scriptures, this this drew me in. I was a worldly person. I lived in the world, but. Whenever I would hear about Revelation or there was a, in Demi Moore's earliest career, the seventh sign, um, it kind of loosely had the plagues and stuff. And I I was fascinated by that movie. So even though I wasn't living the right life, I was blown away and intrigued by judgment because probably because I knew that was going to happen to me if I didn't change. But that's what really kind of drew me in. You know, I saw a prophecy conference at at a Calvary chapel and and that was the end of it. I started going to church there and I got saved. I was like, I want to be on the right side. The proper side. Last term, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, when it's spoken about in the scripture, uh, encompasses Isaiah, Joel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, Malachi, Amos, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Acts, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Second Peter, and Revelation. So the day of the Lord is really all throughout the scripture. And it, it seems to be a time period, not exactly a day, because we know that a day can be more in the eyes of the Lord. That really starts with maybe the rapture, the Lord's coming, and ends with his second coming. To the believer, the day of the Lord means one thing, the day of Christ in Thessalonians. To the unbeliever, it means judgment and wrath, because it's not going to be a good thing. And I think that if you look at the 70th week of Daniel here, you'll see on top of the blue, there's a pink line that runs from left to right. What you see is a parallel path between the believer and the unbeliever. It's pretty wild. So what I'd ask you to do is before we come back next Sunday, really look at this and study it. And I think it'll answer a lot of questions. So the message is called watchful, not fearful. I don't know why some preachers try to scare believers. I've seen it. It doesn't make sense. It makes us afraid of God. When this is done properly, we understand that we're to be watchful. We're to be paying attention. We're to be living the life. We're to be living in the spirit. We're to to smile when these things happen to say, yeah, I can hold it all together because I know the Lord is supporting me. And we're to be a light to the surrounding world. Fearful, if you don't know the Lord, well, probably healthy. You should be in some type of fear and pray about where you stand with the Lord. So I would just say this, as the world gets worse, the world's trending worse day by day. This is something to look at, and hopefully, by the next two Sundays, we'll really have a good grasp on this stuff. Let's pray.